We continue our sermon series in Acts chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, words will be on the screen behind me. Also in our church app, you can find a sermon listening guide that will have the scripture printed there as well. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse one. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, I often wonder, what did that look like? What's, what's no small dissension and debate? I'm sure it was a rigorous conversation. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Paul stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Then down to verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Bersabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Saul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So then when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. While delivering a message to a large audience, this speaker asked everyone gathered to close their eyes for a minute and imagine peace. And after a couple seconds, he then asked some people from the audience to share uh, the mental pictures of peace that they thought about. 
One person described a field with flowers and beautiful trees. Another person spoke of snow-capped mountains and an incredible alpine landscape. And then still another described the scene of a beautiful, still lake. In all of these mental pictures of peace, there was one thing in common. There were no people in them. Now, isn't it interesting that when asked to describe peace, we immediately eliminate everyone from our picture? That says something about relationships, that relationships are hard in a broken world. And not only relationship with others, but even relationship to God in a broken world can bring a tremendous amount of anxiety, a tremendous amount of trouble, and every one of you would raise your hand to that and say, amen. Here's what we usually do when we face that kind of anxiety and trouble. The natural response of the human heart is to abandon what's causing the trouble. So we abandon the people. Right? We move to isolation. We think that's going to that's gonna fix our problem. And that's why if we said, give us a mental picture of peace, you'd say, snow-capped mountain with nobody around. Right? In Acts 15, this tension, relational tension is building between the Jews and the Gentiles. And yet, they don't abandon each other. They don't walk away they actually meet to work it out. And because they worked it out, what resulted was a transformed relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the reason their relationship was transformed is because at the core, their relationship to God was transformed. Now, how? Well, the short answer is verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. It's the grace of Jesus Christ that transforms relationships. The question is how? How does the grace of Christ transform your relationships? We're gonna look at two categories, your relationship to God and then your relationship to people. And that's going to cover it all. So first, how does grace, the grace of Christ, transform your relationship to God? We arrive at what was one of the most critical meetings in the early church. It was called the Jerusalem Council. Why did they call this meeting? Because the church was growing rapidly. And it was growing rapidly outside of Jerusalem amongst non-Jewish people called Gentiles. And as lots of Gentiles were coming to faith, that's the end of chapter 14. Paul is praising God for and celebrating all these Gentiles that are believing the gospel. It raised questions. Verse one, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So some Jews from Jerusalem hear what's happening with the Gentiles and they're quick to come down and say, listen, 
You can't be saved unless you get circumcised. This is what prompted Paul and Barnabas to go back up to Jerusalem to have this meeting to settle the issue. When they gather for the meeting, there's people that rose up in the meeting, the Pharisees, and they say in verse five, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, in this debate, circumcision is the tip of the iceberg. What's really being discussed here is the the law of God or God's commands in the Old Testament, the law of Moses. But circumcision is, is kind of the tip of the iceberg. And circumcision was a sign. It was a sign of God's covenant or relationship with his people. And circumcision was a sign that signified something. It involved the removing of foreskin, which signified the removal of sin. It was a bloody sign that signified there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. So it was a sign that was pointing to what Jesus would do, ultimately to remove sin through the shedding of his blood. But this circumcision was right at the center of the debate. And the, the bigger picture was how were these Gentiles supposed to relate to the law of God, to God's commands. They didn't have God's law. They didn't have scripture revealed to them. They were Gentiles. They didn't know the scriptures. How were they to relate to the law? Did they have to get circumcised, which was part of the law of Moses to be saved? Peter's answer is is very interesting. In verse seven, he says, listen, it's always been God's plan to save the Gentiles. And now it's happening. They're believing, they're being saved. We're watching what God said would happen. But then look at verse eight. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, meaning the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter says, The Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit just like we have. There's no distinction. And the event that he's referring to happened several years earlier in Acts chapter 10, when Peter preached the gospel to this Gentile named Cornelius in his household. And it says that the Holy Spirit came down, fell upon Cornelius and his household. Peter says, listen, just like the Spirit fell on us, meaning Peter and the apostles at Pentecost, so the Holy Spirit's fallen on Cornelius and the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. There's no distinction. Now here's the key. In Acts 10, the key question is, when did the Holy Spirit fall on Cornelius? The Holy Spirit took possession of Cornelius even before he made a verbal confession of faith. It says the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius before he verbally confessed his faith and certainly before he was baptized. And there's no mention of circumcision. Which means that God knew the heart of Cornelius, of these Gentiles. He saw faith in them and the Holy Spirit possessed them. Which means that they were saved not because they made an eloquent verbal confession of faith, not because they got baptized, and certainly not because they were circumcised. They were saved because they believed. 
Salvation came before a verbal profession. Salvation came before baptism. Salvation came before they were able to even obey God's law, the law of Moses. And so Peter sums it up this way in verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Grace alone, through faith alone. The danger of this circumcision debate is a danger that lurks today. And the danger is that we can say, you have to believe that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead. But there's something more you have to do. Right, that's what was going on here. The Jews that were, de were demanding that the Gentiles be circumcised, they would have said, yes, by all means. You have to believe that Jesus died for you. Believe that Jesus rose for you. But that's not enough. There's something more. So today, that something more may be baptism. That something more may be belonging to a, a particular church. Or that something more may be a certain type of behavior. Or that something more may be some sort of ecstatic spiritual experience. Peter says, no, you're saved by grace alone through faith alone, not faith plus, not Jesus plus. So if you're faith, saved by faith alone, what exactly is saving faith? If it's faith alone, what is saving faith? There's actually three components to faith. The first is knowledge. Knowledge is just knowing the truths about Jesus Christ knowing who he is, what he came to do, having knowledge. The second component is conviction. Conviction is believing that those truths about Christ are actually true. And so conviction is just believing that the knowledge you have of Christ is actually true and accurate. But that's not enough. There's a third component. Actually, the book of James says that the demons actually have those first two components. They know the truths about Jesus Christ. And they believe that those truths about Christ are actually accurate and true. The third component to faith is trust. It's trust in the person of Christ. Let me try to illustrate this with the very seat that you're sitting in. Before you sit in a chair, there's things that happen. Now, you don't consciously think about this, okay? So when you walked in here this morning, you just sat down in the chair. I get that. But before you sit in the chair, you have to have uh, a knowledge of the specs of that chair. That, that the specs of that chair say, this is a chair that can hold the weight of a human being, right? That's knowledge. Then you have to believe that the specs listed on that chair are actually accurate and true. That's actually true about that chair. But then you actually have to sit in it. You actually have to transfer your weight into that chair and trust that it will hold you. There may be some of you 
that have knowledge and conviction about Christ, but you haven't transferred your weight into the chair, so to speak. You have not trusted the person of Christ. Knowledge and conviction is good, but that's not enough. Saving faith involves those two and trust. You're saved by faith alone. If you're saved by that saving faith alone, if salvation comes apart from God's law, apart from his commands, then how should you, how should you relate to God's law? How should you relate to his commands? That was the question they were facing here in the early church. Right? How were the Gentiles supposed to relate to the law of Moses? Right? Which is summarized by the Ten Commandments. Well, the council arrived at their decision and they sent a letter back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas and several others to be read to the Gentiles. So where'd they land? Verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves free from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, if we're honest, that's an odd response. I mean, yes, it's great. They didn't list circumcision. Wonderful. The Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. Praise God. As adults, not pretty, not fun. They don't have to be circumcised. But what's odd here, it almost seems like they say, Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised, but here's a whole other list of things you have to do. It's almost like trading one work for a whole bunch of other works. That's not what's being said here. And part of the evidence of this is in verse 31, the way the Gentiles respond to the letter. It says they're greatly encouraged. And so it's not a whole nother list of works being laid on them. So what's going on here? Well, back in verse 20, back in verse 20, where this list of requirements is first mentioned, as they were preparing the letter, we read, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols. Everything listed in verses 28 and 29 were regular practices of idol worship in the pagan temples of the day. So in these pagan temples, they would strangle the sacrifice. They would choke the sacrifice. Then they would, they would taste and drink the blood. And in these, in these pagan temples, you had sacred prostitution going on. So the command against sexual immorality is not just a general command. I mean, that's true of the law of Moses. It was a specific command of the kind of sexual immorality that was going on inside these pagan temples. So really, the, the, the requirements that they laid out in this letter is really just one requirement. One requirement. And that is for these Gentiles to turn from idolatry and turn to Jesus. And that's the exact same requirement that's laid on the Jews in the law of Moses, summarized by the Ten Commandments. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. 
No other gods before me. The Ten Commandments are 100% relational. Across the board, the law of God is relational, 100%. It describes how you relate to God, how you relate to false gods, how you relate to one another. All of life is relational. At every moment of your life, you are involved in relationship. And you say, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. How am I being relational or how am I in relationship when I am at a computer crunching numbers all day long by myself? Well, in that moment, you're relating to your career. You're relating to your vocation. Or you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. How, how am I being relational when I am stuck in my room for hours playing Xbox? In that moment, you're relating to entertainment. You're relating to pleasure. Or you say, how am I being relational when I'm by myself in my car or by myself in my room drinking my pain away? In that moment, you're relating to alcohol. All of life, all of life is relational. It's all relational. The Ten Commandments, or God's law, is not a compilation of rules for life. It is a relational map. It's a relational map that guides you how to relate to your career, how to relate to money, how to relate to entertainment, how to relate to others, so that your relationship to those things is in the proper place and your relationship with God flourishes as the most important relationship. It's really interesting. When you read the Old Testament and you look oftentimes at how Israel's sin is described when they didn't keep the law of God, it's described as adultery. That's a relational term because they turned to other gods and forsook or were unfaithful to the one true God who had rescued them, who had saved them. Sin is relational. Right? You can't break the first commandment or you can't break any of the commandments without first breaking the first commandment. Something or someone has become more important to, to you than God and then lying and coveting and all of that follows. So how does the grace of Christ transform your relationship to God? It changes it from a transactional relationship to an actual, warm, intimate relationship. It changes it from transactional to relational, and the law of God is no longer currency. Think about a transaction. Every time you go to a store or you buy something, this happens, right? For a transaction to happen, you have to have currency. Most of the time it's money, right? But it could be something else. You have something that you're gonna use to go buy something. Oftentimes we view the law of God that way, God's commands, it's currency. So if I'm keeping the commands, I've got good currency to get from God what I want. And if I'm not keeping the commands, I don't have much currency to get what I want from God. The law is not currency. It's not currency. Initially, it's a mirror. 
that shows you your sin and drives you to Christ. But then through the grace of Christ, the law becomes a relational window into the heart of God. The law is a relational window into the heart of God where the treasure of soul-satisfying relationship exists. So two questions. How has your relationship with God become transactional? And how are you treating God's law, his commands, as currency for transaction rather than a relational window into his heart? How does the grace of Christ transform your relationships? We've seen how it transforms your relationship to God, but how does it transform your relationship to people? To people. Starting with the only person you can never, ever, ever get free from. That's yourself. How does the grace of Christ transform your relationship to yourself? You relate to yourself whether you're conscious of it or not. Everyone does. And I would say most of the time that you would never think about treating someone else the way you treat yourself. Because oftentimes you are incredibly unkind to yourself. You're incredibly harsh on yourself. You mistreat yourself. And the reason you do that is because you are relating to God through his law and not through the grace of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Peter addresses here in verses eight and nine. See, the Jews were convinced that one's identity came from adherence to God's law. That's where your identity came from. Whether you obeyed or didn't obey God's law, that's how you developed or created your identity. Peter says, no, 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 no. Your identity comes from the grace of Christ. Your identity comes from the grace of Christ, not from your cleanness or your uncleanness. You're obeying the law of God or not obeying the law of God. It comes from grace alone. Your identity ultimately comes from what God thinks of you. You say, well, I don't don't know what God thinks of me. I had a rough week. I had a rough night last night. I don't know what God thinks of me. If your faith is in Christ, let me tell you what God thinks of you. What does God think of his son, Jesus? That's what God thinks of you, if you're in Christ. What he thinks of his son, Jesus, is what he thinks of you. Challenge in life, day to day, is to continually align your thoughts of yourself, your thoughts towards yourself with God's thoughts of you in Christ. That's the challenge because the drift, the natural drift in life is to drift towards thoughts of self disconnected from the grace of Christ and only tied to the law of God. And when your thoughts of self are born out of law of God and not the grace of Christ, that's when you're unkind. That's when you mistreat yourself. Why is this so important? Now, while I just said that you would never think about treating others the way you treat yourself, 
at the same time, you will treat others the way you treat yourself to a lesser degree. If you're unkind to yourself, you will be unkind to others. If you mistreat yourself, you will mistreat others. If you're hard and harsh on yourself, you will be hard and harsh on other people. Think of your various relationships as cascading waterfalls. The top pool of water is your relationship to God. That cascades into a pool that's relationship to yourself, which cascades into another pool, which is relationship to others. The water that's in that bottom pool came from the top, which means if there's toxic or bad water in that pool of relationship with others, then that means that your relationship with God, something's wrong with it, right? If your relationship with others is toxic, that's only cascading downhill from your relationship with God. There's, a, there's something wrong with your relationship with God. And most likely, it's that your relationship with God has become transactional and not warmly relational through the grace of God of Christ. The grace of Christ transforms your relationship to God, which transforms your relationship to self, which transforms your relationship to others. Now, how does it transform your relationship to others? Verse 9, God made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. The irony of this statement that Peter makes is that there was great distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. They, they were so different. They were such different people culturally. In fact, the highlight of their difference is how the Jews would speak of them in the Gospels. Every time Jesus would go to hang out with the Gentiles, what would the Jews say? Jesus, why are you hanging out with the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and the sinners? They were the stereotypical sinners of the day and nothing's changed in Acts. These were the people that were sinners. They were doing unthinkable things in the pagan temples. Sacred prostitution, barbaric, sacrificial rituals. I mean, Jews and Gentiles were so, so different. Culturally, experientially, their lives on the surface, what they did in the world, they were so different. And yet Peter says, God made no distinction between us and them. The pride of the Jews was just as ugly as the debauchery of the Gentiles. The pride of religious people is just as ugly as the debauchery of irreligious people. The grace of Christ levels the ground at the foot of the cross. This raises the question of belonging. See, the question here in Acts 15 is what badge did the Gentiles have to wear to be able to belong in the church? What was the badge of belonging? And the Jews are saying it's circumcision. They got to put on the badge of circumcision if they're going to be allowed in this church. 
Now, we don't deal with circumcision like that today, but I will say this, or let me ask it in question form. What is the badge that someone has to wear to belong in your life? What's the badge they have to wear to belong in your social group? What's the badge that they have to wear to belong in your community group? What is the badge that someone has to wear to belong in this church? There's only one badge. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, we all, most of us would probably intellectually confess that. But cultural badges of belonging can develop in the life of a community over time. And these cultural badges of belonging create walls of exclusion in a church, walls of exclusion. We could talk about many unsaid badges of belonging, but one of those badges can be well-behaved children. Mmm. I just heard a lot of mmm, hmm? Yes. That's a badge. It's a real badge. Fellow pastor tells a story about an unnamed nursery worker on a Sunday at his church that bumped into a first time visitor named Janet, who had dropped her two boys off in the nursery. After church, she was lined up in the line to get her kids out of the nursery. Nursery worker comes up to her and says, we had some issues with your boys today. Your boys were picking fights with other children in the room. And one of your boys broke several of the toys that belonged to the church. So right there in a room full of other parents and children, this woman scolded her boys. And then she bellowed in a loud, loud voice, a cuss word. She dropped the S-bomb really loud, deeply ashamed, feeling like a failure. She grabbed her boys and she got out of that church. The pastor says he was convinced this woman would never show back up in the church. The next morning, this unnamed nursery worker called the church and said, did, did Janet leave her contact information, which she actually had? She had filled out some form or card. And so this pastor gave her address to this unnamed nursery worker who, unbeknownst to him, sent this woman a note that went something like this. Dear Janet, I'm so glad that you and your boys visited our church. Oh, and about that little exchange when you picked them up from the nursery, let's just say that I found it so refreshing that you would feel freedom to speak with an honest vocabulary like that in church. 
I am really drawn to honesty, and you are clearly an honest person. I hope we can become friends. Love, unnamed nursery worker. The nursery worker and Janet did indeed become friends. Janet came back the next Sunday, and the Sunday after that, and the Sunday after that. She eventually became the nursery director of the church. And later, the pastor would find out that when Janet first came to the church and was first coming to the church, that she was a recovering heroin addict. There's only one badge of belonging, and it's the grace of Jesus Christ. It's a grace that transforms your relationship to God it's a grace that transforms your relationship to self, and it is a grace that transforms your relationship with others. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. As we sang, hallelujah, all I have is Christ, we praise you that that is the only badge of belonging that we have is the grace of your son, Jesus, who went and died on the cross for us, who rose from the dead for us. Father, forgive us when we continually drift back to relating to you through law and not through the grace of your son, Jesus, understanding that he kept the law perfectly for us. And Father, forgive us when we see your law, your commands as currency, and not as a relational window into your heart. Father, would you make this community, this local community here at Christ Church East, a community of grace, that we would be grace receivers and grace givers, that we would be a congregation full of people that are very different in a myriad of ways, that what we hold in common is your son Jesus and his grace. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.